Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquirers Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the Acquirers Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquirers Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquiresfunds.com. 1.30 p.m. Oh, it's still setting up. I'm not sure if we're live or not. We'll do it live. Yeah. It says we're live on mine, so let's It just... does, all right, then we're live. Uh, it's just getting a bit slow, man. There we go. This is value after hours, production quality. Through the top, roof. Top, top podcast production quality, as always. Joined by Jake Taylor and Bill Brewster and Tobias Carlisle. We talk about value stuff in an after hours format, even though we record it during hours. Confusing. It is confusing. <laughs> Indicates that it's a more relaxed atmosphere. We can talk about things uh, that you mightn't otherwise hear on an investing podcast. Not around polite company. Not in polite company. What's happening, fellas? Bill, you got the doggy visiting? Yes. Yes. Oh, good. You're laying down. (laughs) All right. Excellent. Yeah, got a new baby in the house. So that's exciting. Very exciting. How the kids, they're, they're loving it. Uh, no, they're, they're actually the hardest part of it. Uh, they're like, I don't know. My four-year-old has got some attention stuff. He needs to stop being a bitch. <laughs> what's he doesn't, what they're not paying attention to the dog or what's the problem? No, he doesn't like that. The dog's getting attention. He's got to get over it. Uh, okay. Got it. Corey Hofstein's looking for financial advice. He says, should I put 100% of my money in value now? The answer is yes, always. (laughs) If you'd asked me that five years ago, I'd have said yes, still yes. Value is evergreen. It just seems to be cyclical in its performance. But the idea of buying for less than something's worth, that that makes sense to me. Everything else is too hard. Not investment advice. (laughs) That's not investment advice. Although I do think there's some, I, I, I spent some time over the week looking at some of the factors um, kind of interesting. I don't know what to make of it. I'm going to throw it out to you guys, see if you can chew it over with me. Well, you know, if uh, robo-advisors are bailing on it, that it's probably, it's about time to work. I did say that. I, I clicked through and I had a look at what they were actually doing. So I've, it was at Betterment. Betterment says we're no longer using value because it sucks too bad. So I, I, and everybody's pointed out that, you know, ring a bell, that's the bottom. Now value can run again. I had a look um at what their actual what they were saying was the actual definition value factor price to book that's fair enough like they don't like that the particular um metric is, is that what they were using before i mean who's evidently okay. I, I don't know if anybody would actually other than academics would suggest that that's a good way of doing it even though you know the way that the academics use it don't make sense the way that they do it but yeah there are better there are better metrics out there Intangibles, bro. Intangibles word. You got to work out how to bring them onto the balance sheet. Evidently, was it well front? Sorry, thanks, Hofstein. <laughs> it's good having the fact checkers fact checking this live. Yeah, 
it decreases our stupidity by about 12%. It only allows our stupidity to, we're stupid for about the lag. Somebody else takes to figure it out a minute or two. <laughs> this yeah, is everybody's correct. Talk, everybody's talking meta. That used to be called Facebook. No mm. idea where they changed that. It's going to be, I think that's, I think that name metaverse, that's going to age like, you know, stuff that goes off really quickly because it's going to be like, you, you know, remember when virtual reality was like, very uncool for a period there when it went through the trough of disillusionment on the, the Gartner hype cycle. Mm. I'm guessing that metaverse is about to trough of disillusionment anytime soon, just like the stock price. Oof. Yeah, it's, it's interesting around here at some there. point. That was What's quite the a point. That, that was quite a day when it was down 25%. Yeah, well, cheeky hundred billion or whatever it was wiped off the. Market. I think it was more than that. Those. I think it was 200, two hundred. I think yeah. two hundred. Yeah, hundred billion used to be a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Well, was I thinking of Netflix? Who, who tore up a hundred? Who knows? Wow. I don't know. It'll be interesting to watch. Uh, we'll see. Indeed, so, we will see. I so think. Uh, I think a lot of the commentary. Uh, Maybe unsurprisingly is not correct, but whatever. Wait, Twitter with a hot take that's not your favorite? Yeah, but what do well, I know? What's not, um, what's, not, what's not right about the commentary? Uh, I'm not sure that there's actual evidence that uh, TikTok is taking share of Facebook. I know that that's what Zuckerberg said, but I don't know. If you trust alt data, it's not. If you trust what everybody wants to believe it is, I actually think there's a reasonable possibility it's more likely that it's taken share of youtube Ooh, spicy that none of that's none of that's like appearing in the data though is it like youtube's taken over netflix in terms of time watched and and that's and tiktok's uh, I, taken over from instagram hasn't it what, what what's 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 wrong about that well the actual data that app annie puts out shows that Average time spent per user on Instagram and Facebook is actually slightly up over the last two years. But I, the, I thought the, the argument was just that TikTok had overtaken Instagram in terms of people, they were using that more than, I thought that, that was the only take. Uh, I mean, I don't even know if that's supported by the data. I think Instagram is still bigger than TikTok, but I could be wrong on that. Um, but I mean, per user... One of the issues that Instagram has is Reels is cannibalizing Instagram. So your ad load on Reels is lower than what uh, it would otherwise be. Um, but I don't... I think, uh, I think everybody wants to believe that Facebook's dying, but the unfortunate thing for that belief is that the data just doesn't support it. Then what again, about- don't let data get in the way of a good narrative. What about YouTube over Netflix? Uh, I haven't seen those. Uh, I only had a couple slides shared with me, so I can't actually speak to that. I mean, I'm not looking at the data. I'm looking at slides that are shared on Twitter. So if yeah. they're not right, then, then it's not right. <laughs> uh, yeah, TikTok is bigger than Instagram. There we go. Yeah. JT, what you got on deck today? Uh, I've got a veggie piece on a recent, recent white paper by the man, the myth, the Mobison. Only thing that I would ask on average, 
Average, sorry, average monthly users or average monthly hours spent per user on TikTok is a lot higher than Instagram. I'd like to know the age skew. Young people have a lot more time to sit around and look at their phone. That would be, if you got a younger, younger skew, then that would be better, wouldn't it? I, it depends what you're selling. I, I would like to sell advertising to people that have money, not people that, you know, have their parents stare at money. their phone all day. Yeah. Um, sorry, JC, what are you going to do? What's yours? Um, you got a paper from Moberson? Yeah. What, What's he talking about? Uh, we're talking about, uh, actually the scale, uh, which now yeah, we'll get into it. We'll, I don't want to spoil it with too All many right. early. What you got, Bill? Uh, I was going to riff on whatever you guys did. And then, uh, meta was going to be my background or my backup plan. All right, cool. Well, I got, a, I got a few, uh, just the, the different, um, the factors, what seems to have been going on that Facebook implosion. So we can talk about that. It's coming up on the one year anniversary of arc topping out, which is coincidentally the one year anniversary of all of my stuff starting to work. So <laughs> I watched that fairly closely. I didn't set out to be the anti arc and, uh, I'm not, I'm not suck or anything like that. It's kind of, but that seems to be the way that it's going value and quality is inverse to, uh, to arc go figure. And then energy rates, inflation, does that, is that sort of starting to work? It's magic. I saw the 10 years creeping up towards 2%, which just seems to me to be an incredibly low number, but who knows? Maybe that's the, the pin that pricks the bubble. I saw this, peak rates. I saw this peak rates, peak rates, right now. <laughs> peak rates of, for this cycle. Speaking. I of, mean, I honestly actually believe this is probably peak rates. Oh, I think I'll take the, I'll take the over on that bet. Oh, I mean, if you've been waiting for rates to go up for a long time, <laughs> I have. I wouldn't expect that to stop today. No, I would that. Well, but if the Fed, I mean, if the Fed had its way, it probably would be peak rates for the cycle, right? It's just that like, inflation and energy and uh, a few other things going on. I don't know what the Fed watches. I've got no idea what the Fed watches. Like housing markets, just as hot as the surface of the sun. <laughs> Stocks have been up a lot. Doesn't seem to care. Food prices, energy Fed, prices. Yeah, yeah. Just stuff that you would just want stuff that or you need. eat and live live yeah. in. That don't count the stuff that you live in. By the way, like I saw an interesting statistic. What do you think the average mortgage rate was in the US in 1990? When did they top out like 80? Yeah. Like 16% in 80. Yeah, it was probably like eight, seven or eight. Uh, that'd be yeah, I'd guess something around there, six, seven, eight. Ten percent. Why was yeah. it so high? Like you said, it was just hadn't seventeen got and ten percent. Eighty-two, ten percent. Imagine what your house is worth in a ten percent mortgage rate environment, and that was nineteen ninety. We're not talking about like you know nineteen thirty-seven or something. It wasn't that long ago. It's ancient history. Ancient history. Um, no growth from nineteen ninety. Well, just now, I just, I don't know. Oh, you got today. tech deflation, GDP is not hot. Like I'm talking long-term. I don't know about this year and next year. Yeah. Who the hell knows? Uh, let me just do quickly. We can. Yeah. The money I, hasn't recirculated to the rich and stopped flowing around. It will soon. I, I looked at, uh, I've just kind of been interested, like values, values have been 
my my definition of value acquirers multiple has been sucking wind a little bit for since about may last year um and so i was just interested to know what sort of happened because because we keep on hearing this the spread is wide what does that mean the spread is wide so i just looked at a combination of these things sales cash flow book earnings and ev ebit which is the acquirers multiple and um what's interesting is sales and book and cash flow have all come in pretty significantly the spread since cash flow didn't really ever get that blown out but sales and book certainly did that's so all come back the, in like the top spread. decile versus bottom decile difference yeah okay exactly thank you for clarifying that i should have said that it's okay but they've come in pretty materially since sort of september last since september 2020 but the two that have blown out and consistently blown out and i can't i don't know why they would be so different because I can understand why book doesn't work and cash. I don't know, but sales and there should be a pretty strong relationship between sales and EBIT and earnings eventually. But EBIT, the EV EBIT has blown out as wide as it's now much, much wider than it was in the dot-com peak, much, much wider than it was in 2007, 2009. It's basically the widest we've seen. And the interesting thing about US uh, EV EBIT is it is comparably wide to you know, the rest of the world, which is not true of the other value factors. They all seem to have like come in. All those other ones have blown out. So typically, you know, wider spreads mean better returns are coming in the future. But I'm just kind of interested to know, what do you guys think? Like, why would, why would those two keep on blowing out while the other two would come in so, so consistently? I have a hypothesis on what, what's the difference between PE and EV to EBIT. Really, it's... Uh... Debt debt right so if if on taxes and taxes but uh if there was an interest i guess too but if there was on the debt side i think we've seen sort of a, a kind of a junk rally if you will uh yeah. like and i noticed comparing one particular etf that you might be familiar with toby uh that you might even manage compared to rzv which is a just a small cap general value uh index. And so those two, like yours is a little bit higher quality cut relative to maybe a little higher debt loads for some of the for RZV. So it's been interesting to watch how they move a little bit different from each other. And I noticed like the, the debty ones kind of did a little better. And I wonder if it was from existential crisis of 2020, if you have a, a heavy balance sheet and then like, there's a little bit of question marks get about crushed. whether you're going to survive yeah. and get crushed. And now it's like, okay, they're probably going to survive. And you see that kind of bounce back. And so therefore, a less aggressive EV to EBIT than does maybe relatively not as, not as good because they were never as in much existential crisis. There's also the, um, there's a composition element too. So there's a lot of energy and uh, heavy industry and those others, I guess, particularly book. Energy as energy spikes, you get books going to look a lot healthier when energy spikes. Financials do. Yep. I don't know. It's interesting. I I think it's good news because I think that there's a lot of returns coming. But it's and we're very very early in the cycle to the extent that we may not even have started. The, the spread may not have even started closing. Yeah. So early, it's not even started. <laughs> All right. Next cab off the rank. Sort of interrelated. Interrelated. Uh, the, uh, energy rates and inflation. So energy has been rocketing recently. And uh, 
that's probably part of the reason we've seen some of the uptick in inflation, among other things. And then rates are sort of seem to be behind the curve. It seems like every time Powell has a presser, he says there are going to be some rate cuts coming, but just not yet because everything's too fragile. And then every like market estimate of how many rate rate sorry not rate cuts rate yeah. increases, every single uh, like market estimate they seem to be saying like between four and seven increases over the course of this year. Is when the market always too optimistic in these things? Above my pay grade, I don't know. Because the two-year has been sort of, I mean, in a relative context, I know we're still talking about sub-2%, but it has been running pretty hard. I mean, I, I think I said mid-last year that there was, I saw, I forget who he was from, but could have been Goldman Sachs or something like that, interviewed on Bloomberg and said they had a, they thought 2% by year end and it didn't quite get there. And I'm guessing they just took a ruler and put a line through the trend and figured out where the intersect was at the end of the year. But like, here we are, they're not that far wrong. We're only a few weeks into the, the new year. Does that, yeah. like all of that, does that eventually, I mean, I guess we've already seen a lot of the, uh, the high flyers have had a lot of the wind come out of them, but like, is that the, are these the nails in the coffin? No. Care to elaborate? I mean, I, no, I don't. I don't have any any thoughts other than it seems like uh, people want it to be the nail in the coffin. And like, I don't know if you look at where rates are. Like, if you just draw a trend line from 1985 to, to today, we're like basically bouncing up against what would be resistance. So, like, this is a rate rally. I really do think, I mean, you know, whatever, laugh at me. I, I think rates are not going much higher. I think if they do, you're going to squeeze growth. And then if you squeeze growth, they're going to come down. I, I think like the thing that's hard for me to understand is like, what does the 10 and the 30 year imply on actual growth? Like, like you do have people locking up paper. Now I guess they trade and you lever it and whatever, but I mean, you know, the, the 30 years, two, two, four. So like, I, I, I mean, that would imply that uh, people are buying that kind of duration for that it's... kind of a yield. So I, I mean, I don't know. I tend to think that the deflationary forces that were pre COVID continue and, you know, like stuff like college will go through the roof because it's not a free market. Well, does oil sort of, take it out of the hands of the Fed? Or does oil just sort of do it? Oil acts as a big handbrake on the economy as everything yeah, goes until up, it does more expensive. Like when's the last time that high oil prices haven't led to low oil prices? Yeah, but in the interim, you get a 2007, 2009 type scenario. I, maybe. That's how you I get back know. to those low oil prices. Yeah, I guess. I don't and know. Since I'm focused I, on equities, that's what I'm thinking about. I think that that's a really short-term focus on a on something that's supposed to have a thirty-year duration plus. I, I don't I I don't care much what happens in the next two years, and you know I mean I need to position my asset allocation accordingly so whatever happens I can get through it. But within an equity allocation, I think worrying about stuff like this uh, would cause much more harm than good. But. There are plenty of people smarter than me that disagree. Yeah, it's a tough, tough game. So many moving just, pieces, and it's not always clear which, like they don't 
always matter the same at different points. Like sometimes it matters, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes this data point is the important thing. Sometimes it's not. Like it's such a complex system. You one wonders why you try to predict what it's going to do next. Well, it's unpredictable. I'm just sort of interested in talking it's about it because this around, is value yeah. after hours. This is not how I invest. It's just fun to talk about. Yeah, I guess sure. the thing is, it, like inherently, equities are super long duration instruments. And everyone that I've ever studied in respect says think long. I've never heard anybody be like, try to predict oil prices and position yourself accordingly along with what your forecast of rates is. There are some macro guys that do it, but like I can barely pick a stock, much less the rest of the stuff. But I'm not necessarily suggesting you do that. Like if you're if you're in if your estimate goes out 30 years, then what discount rate are you using over 30 years? Are you using two percent? Because I think that's going to be too low over 30 years. I think that you go you got to normalize over 30, go back to six. Like, I don't think we're going back to six, man. Throw a six handle on this well, economy and well, tell me how the debt's serviceable. Yeah, it's not. But <laughs> okay, but so then that's what exactly happens? my point, and that's Jubilee. why I want to talk about it. Okay, but then I think then I think you need to be in cash for that portion that you're worried about. I don't think that like well, you could just I just fundamentally stuff disagree. Really matter. It'll matter. I promise. If thing go if if rates go to six, your deep value is not going to be safe. I don't think anywhere's going to be safe, but I would much rather be in some stuff that's going to earn more than 6% and it's not heavily levered than stuff that's like projecting out 10 or 15 years at exceptionally high rates of growth. Like, I, I think, think where you and I disagree, I think where you and I fundamentally disagree on that statement is I don't think you're going to earn more than 6% because I think your implied earnings base underlying your 6% assumption is going to be screwed. So I think everything is coming down. And that's why I think you have to, if that's your view, I think you hold cash to offset that risk. I mean, I think I, everything is coming down. Yeah. So that's a cash issue. But I don't, I don't think, think you, you hide cash. in value stocks. I think you get out of equities. Like, I don't think you're like, oh, I'm, I, I really do fundamentally think that like picking a place to the market to hide is the wrong way to play that trade. I think deep value is just about the only way that you're going to be able to go through it because deep value is like, if you look at Japan, you look at what happened in Japan over... 1990 to, to basically to date like it's it's still below where it was in 1990 or 1992 whenever it sort of topped out and the only thing that has worked is a thing that where you buy it at a very deep discount to what it's worth and then as it runs up you sell it and replace the basket with a with a cheaper basket and i think that that sort of um you know ratcheting effect is the only thing that will work I don't think you can rely on underlying growth in the businesses to sort of drive returns in the portfolio because I think that you get, if you overpay for them, which I think that we've just, like what we've done is overpaid for everything. And that's how you get 2000 to 2015 type scenario where really, really good businesses keep on performing, but the stock prices go nowhere. Yeah. Well, it'll be very interesting to see, like one of the big, differences in that analogy is the returns on equity of the businesses and Japanese businesses over that time period were very anemic when it came to returns on equity. And the, the longer you hold, the more return on equity matters for your expected return. So if you are kind of trading more like a value guy on a shorter term, like active turnover of a portfolio, ROEs don't matter as much, right? But um, you're, 
you're playing a relative kind of cheapness spread. Uh, but if you're a longer term holder, then ROEs start to matter. And U.S. businesses in the last 30 years have had phenomenal ROEs and, and especially relative to other time periods. Even actually Buffett was talking about it in like 98, 99 and saying like they were kind of shocked at how high ROEs were even then. Uh, and I think they've kind of I think they're climbed. I think they're higher than they were back then. So um, if that's the case, uh, well, one, it's hard to imagine getting another bite of that apple of the ROE apple. Like we've seen taxes come down a bunch. We've seen intangibles and the growth rates of intangibles. Uh, I guess that could keep going for for longer and that's possible. It's hard to imagine taxes getting lower on businesses from here. Uh, well, I don't know what other levers you have to pull more debt, like the companies have levered up a fair amount already as it is. Like, I don't know how many more levers there are to pull on the in this equation to get higher ROEs from here. Uh, so and if anything, you kind of have to fade that a little bit, I think, uh, from if history is any guide, but it will matter materially over the next 20 to 30 years, what ROEs look like. And Do you know what Jap Japanese ROEs were like peak cycle? Like in 89, what were they like? Or, or yeah, yeah. I don't know what they were in like the eighties. I have to imagine they were pretty high because there was, I mean, you're just like, everything's working. Every real estate thing you're buying is like going up and you're, you know, marking your mark to market your book. So your, you know, book values are growing like crazy. I have to think if they were looked good and if I, that'd be my guess. Although I don't know the answer to that. Cause I thought the issue was always that all the cross shareholdings you know, it made it hard for anybody to take them over and just shake them up. But it also probably, you know, you're holding stuff that's not really economic. You're probably overpaying for it. And that's going to, eventually that's going to suppress ROEs. Right. If there's no cleansing, bloodletting bankruptcy to, to really like actually transfer capital from the hands of those who made good, poor decisions to the hands who will make better decisions, um, then you end up with, I think, zombie companies and, and low ROEs. I think that a lot of the, um, you know, Japan has done increasingly better. There've been a lot of stories over, over the last 10 or 15 years about Americans moving in and practicing, you know, initially starting out as like American style activists and then becoming more collaborative or changing the way that they did it. But, but whatever, whatever process they used, eventually sort of getting that message through that cross shareholdings don't help and you need to free up capital and you need to get out of stuff that's, that's earning, uh, that's not earning enough on equity. And I think that they have sort of slowly improved and that's probably why they're starting to look a lot better than they have. It could be a lot of the reason why it's performing a little bit better more recently. Yeah, it's possible. I think the other part is the pension funds who recognize like, Oh my God, we have unfunded liabilities that we have to meet with this basket of assets that we have. And if, that basket of assets is not earning very well and not, not growing. We're going to have a hard time meeting these liabilities. So like we need to do something structural to fix this. Right. Well, we've resolved that issue. Yeah. <laughs> What's next? I did, The only Middle thing East. that I disagree with is you were saying like, if your value and you're trading more ROEs don't matter, but I don't see how you can have an accurate view of whether or not you're buying value without a view of ROE. Uh, if, if uh, a net net, I don't need to know what the ROE is. Yeah, but okay. 
That's what you were buying in Japan, though, was net nets. Like that was what Toby was referencing. Well, no wonder it didn't go anywhere. You're re-rating to cash, and then you got nothing else to do. Then you got to sell a security and go find something. Yeah, like, that's that, that's that, like a one. But puff. that worked, right? Yeah, but unless there's another net net to go read, that's a reinvestment. Like the risk you're taking with net nets is reinvestment rate, like reinvestment risk, and some sort of agency problems, right? Like if the people in the net net pay themselves too much and your cash turns into illusory cash or the security re-rates and now you got your cash value and you got to go find your next net net and you got to pay taxes and then you got to go do it again. Right. So I like think Jake the- was just making the point that, you know, the longer your holding period, the more important return on equity becomes versus buying at a discount. Yeah. But I don't see, I don't see how you can buy at a discount without having a view on your long-term ROE. You can't do a valuation without that. Well, you can assume that it stays where it is and you can see that it's subpar. But like, so, so take, take, take energy, for example, over the last 12 months, like energy looks worst at the bottom of its cycle, like low, low prices for oil. Um, all of your fixed costs are the same. So you got, you're not making any money. Like that, they, they, the returns on equity look terrible. And paradoxically, that's the best time to buy energy because that's that's when it gets cheapest. And at the other side of the cycle, when they're earning lots of money on on equity, um, then now they're expensive and now everybody knows and that's probably the time to be exiting energy. But as you just said, like the spread between EV to EBIT has widened a whole lot. And I hear a lot of commodity pitches as it's one times EBIT. Well, guess what? The market's telling you that EBIT is not underwritable. Yeah. So that could be part of the spread extending, right? Where people are yeah. like, these EBIT numbers on some of these commodity companies are not, they're just garbage. That used to be true of car companies back when they were just metal benders and <laughs> you could never get more than like a four or five times multiple on it because everybody knew that it's still just a car company. <laughs> but I, but now- I think that could be some of what's going on, right? You got like, there's a lot of shortages. There's a lot of like short-term pricing power that's in some of these businesses. The market may just be like, look, this is a one-time puff. Yeah, I mean, there's there's some yeah. of that. It's just historically, it has been like the 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 less you pay for your flows or your assets, the better you do. And return on equity has not been a great metric to kind of build a portfolio on because it's it's highly mean reverting. When it's high, it's coming back down. When it's low, it's going back up. So it's sort of a um, you know systematically it, it's it's not a great metric if you've got a if you've got a better view of it you know in, in an individual company then that's a different matter but i just you know i'm i'm, I'm i invest on base rates i'm always worried about what the base rates are going to do for stuff that i'm holding for like the 2000 to 2010 period gavin baker was on o'shaughnessy's podcast and he said that uh the real reason that that outperformed was earnings growth do you guys have a view on that because i don't know what an outperform value value. Yeah. Like, like it, it really had a good run because that was when the bricks came out and like the commodities really ran and it was a ton of earnings growth that propelled it. And I, I guess like ever since I was reading Drew Dixon's uh, analysis of like growth pummeling value for like 30 years, I just kind of wondered, you know, one answer is rates, but I'm wondering if there's another answer that I'm I'm like blind to or whether or not his piece, no offense, Drew, but I haven't like checked it, but like whether or not his piece is missing something. Um, I just don't know. 
But when Gavin said that, I was like, oh, that's interesting that uh, that would be a like if that decade was super normal earnings growth in the value factor. Yeah, except it's, it's, it's existed outside of that time period too. Like what's the explanation for the, for the full data set? I don't know. And across different factors. Yeah. Across different regions. Like it's just, he's cherry picked like a seven year period out of a, not cherry. I don't mean to be like, he's trying to be misleading. Yeah. About it. I just mean that, you know, that if you, if you like the, the answer could be, it was compositional. It was just value. Junkie value had a whole lot of commodities and energy and financials and all of those things ripped through that period. You know, the book factor would have done quite well because it was picking up all that sort of stuff. But then you've got to answer the question for other factors, EV, EBIT, EV, EBITDA over the full set in different countries. And it gives you the same answer. And that's not going to be necessarily uh, flattering, um, you know, financials. And because we, in, in quantitative value, we excluded financials and we excluded utilities. And the effect still persists, so it doesn't. It doesn't answer the question. I think the the, the real answer is that people get to um, people get to uh, confident in their ability to predict what these businesses are going to do, and so they're yeah. prepared to pay up prices, and they just disappoint. And there's stuff at the other side that when the baby's thrown out with the bathwater, often that's mid, you know, the worst part of the cycle. And so then, as it improves on the other side. If you've already bought something cheap and you get that improvement, then the market had priced it for the dustbin, and now it's got a re-rate on a on a rising, uh, you know, on on a rising business cycle, and it, that's how you get the that's how you get the move. And I think that that's what the O'Shaughnessy paper shows is that the growthier stuff maintains its growth rates, just it gets multiple compression. And ordinarily, value does see the earnings fall over the holding period over one year holding periods, but the multiple expands because it's already too low it's it's a it's an imperfect answer but i think that it's that that pretty much that's reality i mean that's what i have seen yeah i wonder how much massive private equity changes the whole equation see the private equity i've been private equity is cashed up and is doing business but it doesn't seem to be showing up in small cap where all the takeouts of small cap well i mean so that that's kind of the question that I'm asking is, do we honestly think that they haven't scoured the earth for small caps that are good value? What are they doing with their cash? They're just like retrading stuff that they've, they've got a fund, they bought something, they've got to exit it. So they just exit to other private equity or exit to another fund. I mean, that's possible. I have thought about that. They're just trading all these things around. You know, it's pretty stable. Yeah, there's some of that. Ironically, there's a public market discount. So exiting the public markets is not exactly uh, is that right? exciting. Yeah. Crazy. Well, people pay a they pay a premium to be locked up so they don't have to ingest quotational yeah. brain damage. Munger pointed yeah. that out right too. Yeah, I think that's right. Hey, thanks for the uh, thanks for the tip, Jason. Fifty bucks from Jason Hirschman. Thanks, brother. Whoa, that's uh, that's inflation more, there. <laughs> more Omaha yeah. drinks. Thank you. All right, should we do some some Mobison? Yeah, let's eat some veggies. All right. Next time, Bitcoin. <laughs> so uh, this white paper that, that Mobison has out, it's, uh, it's called Underestimating the Red Queen. And 
you know, we actually have discussed already what a lot of this paper is based on. And this is uh, the theoretical physicist Jeffrey West's work, which his book Scale that we talked about actually season two, episode 49, which was December 17th of 2020. So remember um, it well. We're, we're front running Mobison research. Uh, just kidding. Um, so it talks about Kleber's law. And what that was, if you remember from our segment, was that basically like along the x axis, there's a log scale of an animal's body mass. So it's like one, 10, a hundred thousand. And then on the Y axis, there's a log scale that is the, the animal's like metabolic rate. And that's like energy used per unit of time. And so there's this like nice upward sloping line along this logarithmic scale. That's it's, it's about three quarters rise over run. And so we can see, we can plot out how much does an animal weigh versus how much, what's their metabolic rate. And, and we see this nice line. So What's underlying that explanation is really how nature dissipates energy throughout a network. And, you know, it explains the rate of blood flow, the number of heartbeats, longevity and growth. And this is what the most important thing is, is so in, in the context of this white paper. And I don't know if you guys have ever really stopped before to ask yourself, like, why do we stop growing at some point? Like, why don't there's some living things that grow continually until they die, like Peloton or no, <laughs> too soon. Uh, there's a reason for this. And it's that the energy is allocated. Nature's figured this out. Like it's allocated, allocated to the growth of new cells, as well as the maintenance and repair of the old cells. And when you're born, most of your energy gets directed towards that growth. But eventually after you become a certain size, all your energy has to go towards maintenance and you stop growing. So uh, this similar phenomena exists for, for businesses. And in a corporate context, financial capital is serves as what like nature's energy is. So there's like an analogy there and growth stops at the point that maintenance needs are consumed by the available incoming energy or capital effectively. So understanding the growth of the company means that we have to understand the difference between growth capex and maintenance capex. And this is something we've talked about on the show before, but this, this paper dives into it a little bit deeper. Um, and it's possible that a lot of the growth that you're looking at is is maybe not quite as shiny as you think it is because they, it's possible that they're spending more on maintenance than you imagine. And this is where the red queen effect comes in. If you remember in Alice in Wonderland or, um, you know, the, the red queen says that like, you have to run twice as fast to just stay where you are. Right. And this is a little bit of like Buffett's talked about, you know, standing on your tippy toes at a parade. There's lots of different analogies. Um, Matt Ridley, who's my favorite author has this book called the red queen. And it's, it's basically like the, how that relates to biology. Uh, and, you know, there's sort of these arms races that happen in biology, uh, especially around um, immune systems, which is kind of interesting to go back and reread, given our last two years of, of experience with COVID and all that. Uh, so we just got demonetized. Ah, <laughs> probably not. You're allowed, to, you're allowed to criticize it now. So oh, okay. Probably okay. It's, it's all good. Um, so there are two complications that are, that impact this conversation. One is inflation as the other is technological obsolescence. So the first one, inflation. When prices are rising, the CapEx exceeds depreciation, even in a stable business, because the new CapEx that's being funded is at an inflated rate. And when you're depreciating it, that's based on older historical costs, right? So in, in, in opposite, in the case of deflation, Moore's law type of situations, right? Uh, the capex gets cheaper over time, and depreciation then is kind of overstating the maintenance capex. So sometimes these first movers actually don't have much of an advantage. 
compared to the followers because their costs can be higher than if the costs are falling, right? So, uh, and the other one is this idea of technological obsolescence. And what's, what's happened there is that there's this increasing, it's increasing the chances that you're overestimating the useful life of an asset. So, you know, if all of a sudden, like a write down is really like the sudden recognition of the loss of the usefulness of this asset. Um, and of course, you know, it's, it's, there's another kind of bifurcation here that makes it complicated and that's tangible versus intangible. And if you remember some of our conversations, like for tangible assets, depreciation tends to understate maintenance capex. Uh, and this is, might be because the tangible part of the economy is almost like this mature, fully grown adult uh, as, com as compared to like uh, a younger, you know, growing company uh, where they, because it's newer, more of the, the CapEx is likely going towards growth as opposed to maintenance. So, um, you know, it almost kind of makes, I can't help but wonder about uh, like David Einhorn's observation, maybe last year when he was talking about how a lot of basic industries have been starved of capital recently, um, you know, especially in the last decade. I mean, I think he's referring to energy largely, but um, anyway, the, the, this younger part of the economy is kind of is more based on intangibles. And so more energy is going towards growth, maybe than maintenance. And they and Malbosen's found through research that, that firms with higher intangibles have faster growth rates, but they also have higher standard deviations, right? So when something breaks, it's like a really long way down to find that next thing of value. So, you know, you can't reuse computer code for very much. And if, you know, think about like BlackBerry or something, like what's the next use of it? It's like, God, it's miles below what we were valuing it before. And this actually goes back to, you know, our, remember when we talked about Eugene von Baumberg about his subjective value and the different bags of grain that he was going to decide like what to use them for. And as you like remove grain, you don't just like, you know, s satisfy your needs, you know, that much less it's you, you cut off whatever the least useful thing was for you. And then that's the next, where the price is set as to like the value of something. So, um, it's all just like at the margin, right? So, um, when you compared to like, let's say the tangible economy where physical machinery has scrap value or real estate that they have, like could be used for something else. So there's like another level, there's another layer down where obsolescence isn't quite as far of a cliff compared to intangible world. So um, there's this, and like, so the rest of this white paper, Malbison's walking through a bunch of examples and it's probably better to read it and to hear me talk about the specifics because there's numbers and it, it starts to get confusing. But um, one thing that was interesting was there's this accounting professor named Pedretti, I think his name, Pedretti. Uh, and he did a study where he looked at companies from 1974 to 2016. And he looked at all these different industries. And in general, he found that maintenance capex exceeded depreciation and amortization by about 20%. And of course, like there's a lot of variation between industries. And therefore, there's probably even more variation between companies within industries. But in general, like 20% overstating, uh, like that could kind of be material. And to give you a little idea of some of like some of the numbers of this, in 2020, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft all changed the useful life that they were using for their servers from three years to four years. And so all of a sudden, earnings got boosted by about $2 billion each from just a simple accounting change for all three of those companies. And in the case of Amazon, that was about a, I think about a 10% increase to earnings, just like non-economic changes. It's just purely we're going to say that that computer, like these servers that are running are good for four years now instead of three years. So Amazon, Google, and Microsoft. Yeah. You mean the three big cloud providers? Yeah, exactly. So maybe they're actually worth more 
for longer than people anticipated because the cloud's a really big thing? Uh, I don't know if that's the takeaway, but okay, I I <laughs> just might be. throwing out an alternative reality. Okay, could be. Uh, so let's say that what's actually kind of ironic about all this is actually the energy companies, like no, none of the companies report their maintenance capex versus growth capex, right? And it would be very, and it's it's quite possible they don't know the answer to that. Like I bet most CFOs don't really know the answer to what dollar it should be considered growth capex versus uh, you know maintenance. But ironically, energy companies of all like do this because they're the way that like just the, the dynamics are that they, because they start with a certain amount of reserves and they know that they exist with some certainty and that they're, that they're accessible by the, today's technology, uh, they know then they, they go and tap those reserves. They, feel, they therefore know how much it, like they need to buy or, or go and find to replace those reserves so they can see like actually what maintenance capex is based on production levels. So uh, ironically, energy's kind of already been doing this, and it would probably be helpful for investors if more companies tried to give us some of those numbers rather than us trying to like back into them. But anyway, great white paper. Uh, stand on the cutting edge of of research as as Mobison does, and um, yeah, I would check it out if if I were you. How do you divide the capex up into maintenance capex and growth capex? How do I personally? Yeah, like what's the what's the what's a simple rule of thumb for doing it? Or there is none. I think it's so industry specific that it's really hard to to give a simple rule of thumb. Uh, I, I think there's a lot of art to this, and maybe almost to the point where it's theoretically correct, but operationally almost impossible to to execute in a way that you wouldn't. There's incredible amount of chance of tricking yourself probably if <laughs> in this because it's so hard to determine. So before you said there's a reason why we stopped growing at some particular point, but there are other animals that have grown bigger, right? So why, why does any individual species or, or individual stop growing at some point? I don't, I don't know the exact answer to that. I think it has something to do with the amount of calories available. So energy, uh, like above a certain point, as we've talked about with, um, oh shoot, who was it that wrote the paper a long time ago? Um, it was something it had to do with the size of animals and, and actually like the, the physics of the, of capillaries and how blood can move across membranes only to a certain size. And therefore you can only get to be so big. Um, <clears throat> but anyway, the, I, I don't know if the, the real answer, like I don't have a, a good prepared answer for that, but I think it has to do with like above a certain size, like you just can't get enough energy and diffuse it throughout the entire system to have it live. Um, uh, but why, like, why a pygmy shrew versus an elephant? I, I don't quite understand. It's interesting to think about big businesses now that are sort of one screen facing a variety of customers, where in the past they had to you know, go and do that individually for each individual customer. In some ways, they've sort of solved that problem where the energy diffusion is, it's a shorter step. So they're able to, energy diffusion might not be the right analogy, but they've just got a tight, a closer relationship with the customer they just you just work on one piece of code whereas previously all you had to do over and over again. i mean you get uh opex has to go up because of a change because they don't have the direct relationship with the customer because apple cuts them off and uh some goes to amazon arguably some's going to go to tiktok or is going 
Uh, some goes to Apple. You got to spend. So what's your maintenance spend versus your gross spend? It all comes back to meta. How do you, how do you try to figure that out, Bill? Like what do you, how do you decide what's, what part of SGNA would you count as growth versus maintenance? What part of R and D? Cause I think actually R and D a lot of it is, especially for bigger tech companies is needed to keep the system up and running to keep the cash flows of today's customer running. It's not like it's all, it's not as discretionary as it sounds. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you look for margin inflection and I think for SGNA looking at like incremental SGNA spend to incremental revenue is a reasonably good idea to figure out whether or not the sales force is getting incrementally more uh, productive. So you look at the change in revenue versus the change in SGNA, like yeah. in a year? Yeah. I mean, it's not perfect, but I almost yeah. figure like, okay, well, last year's workforce got paid this. How much did the additional pay change Drive. the additional revenue? And like, are they getting more productive or less productive over time? Cold-blooded yeah. animals keep growing. First cent. Thanks for that. Crocodiles, for example, grow all their lives, just like Peloton, right before they die. There you go. Apple and Amazon have huge problems with supply chains. Google and Microsoft don't care. Yeah, that's right. Was that the? Uh, no, that doesn't. What was that? What, what was? You know, Chamath had that. Uh, they've been doing victory laps because he had that spread bit last year where he said, "Was it long?" Long Google, short Facebook. He's gonna he's gonna do victory laps over that. When you look at his no, SPAC performance, but he had he a spread incinerated bet. retail capital, and he's gonna joke about some spread bet that he theoretically laid. <laughs> this guy gets better and better each time I hear it. How's Clover doing? Let's see. What else did he take? Not oh, great, Bob. <laughs> Two seventy six. All right, let's see space. We need percentage changes. It's 71. That's okay. Oh, boy. Except it apparently came out at 56. Hmm. I don't know. I'll have to check out IPO A and B also, but I think uh, I think maybe a little humility would go a long way. I When I watched the little clip, I don't, I don't think I go all the way through it, but all I saw was him. They said, you know, watch him explain why it's going to happen. And I was really interested to see what the mechanics were, like why. What's the logic? Yeah, the logic underlying it. And all that I saw was him explaining what a spread bit was. Is oh, I think, I think he was right on ATT and how it would drive incremental dollars to Google. I, think, I mean, I, I do think he was right on that. But what was the, what was the thesis? But it was well, too, right? It was long. Yeah, it was long Google and so Microsoft Facebook short the other things. Thanks, Lawrence. Uh, was it short all the other things? I thought oh, it was, it was too, long. Right? It was I thought it was Netflix long and, Microsoft and Google and yeah. short uh, Facebook and something else. Facebook Netflix, Netflix maybe. Yeah, which if that if it's true that it was Microsoft and Google, then you got to explain Amazon to me. But um, I do uh, at least Facebook versus Google. I think he was right on. Um, and I Facebook think it has already to do stumbled with by that point though. Attribution. What the, what's the attribute? What do you mean? Well, Facebook specializes in ads that, um, shout out to my man, Devin, uh, latent user intent, right? Stuff that you don't know that you need, but you, you do want. Uh, that's what Facebook specialty is. What does that mean? Like I want, uh, I didn't know that there was a ice chest with a stereo in it and now I want so, that. So 
so I have stopped drinking for the most part. And I am interested in non-alcoholic cocktails. It's not something I've ever looked into in my entire life. Facebook started to serve me ads for non-alcoholic wine and non-alcoholic cocktails. And I'm actually pretty happy that they're doing it. Um, (laughs) So like they, I mean, you know, whatever the laughter is, they're like objectively serving me relevant ads. And it's probably the most relevant ad that I've gotten in a long time. Uh, Google, on the other hand, specializes in like, you know, I'm typing in non-alcoholic wine. Yeah. And then Google. Yeah. So it's more like, you know what you need and you're doing. It's also why Amazon's growing so much, right? Like there's only so much shelf space on Amazon. So when you type in a search term into Amazon, it's a bidding war to get notice now. Uh, It's beautiful real estate to charge for. But then that sounds more useful. than so that makes Facebook sound more useful than Google, doesn't it? So what would that be the thesis for long Google, short Facebook? Well, Google is not just search, right? You got YouTube, you got GCP. Well, the, so the issue is when, when, when uh, Apple's tracking came out, Facebook can no longer. So I talked to a guy who um, manages spend for small business. And it's why I sent out this tweet about Facebook helping business. But uh, the alarming thing that he said to me is he said, when Facebook used to be able to track people across iOS, they would have, um, you'd have green shoes and red hats, say, that you're selling. You would know the click-through rates on green shoes versus red hats. And now that's gone completely dark. So now rather than pouring fuel on your marketing spend for green shoes, because it's got more traction, you continue to have to shotgun. And he said, it's kind of like going back in, in time where you have half your marketing spend is wasted. You just don't know which one um, or which half. And the concerning thing that he said to me is he said, uh, you used to be able to like pre this change, um, have like a t-shirt shop, just an idea in your garage and basically scale it on the back of Facebook ads. And he was like, I don't think that's possible anymore. Would you say so track I kinda, you and iOS? What does that mean? Uh, they watch like everything that you can click through, like all your, so that's what Apple turned off. So like now when they're in Facebook, then I can, they could see what I'm clicking on or no, no, they could everything. see everything. Now Apple's allowed to watch. I actually turned that on for Facebook because I don't mind the ads. So I don't mind if they watch what I do inside other ads. It's actually made my Twitter ads more relevant too. Tell me, tell me your long Facebook without telling me your long Facebook. <laughs> no, well, I, do, I actually don't mind. I'm like, I mean, I think I have a 1% allocation. It's like nothing. But um, I, I do think it's interesting. Apple, you can click on advertising. And Apple does the same thing, by the way. Anyone that thinks they don't is out of their minds. Um, but you can turn it on and it's called advertising. And then... If you turn it on for all the other apps, it's called tracking, which is a mm. distinction without a difference. But uh, that's the nice part of owning the customer relationship. That's pretty gross, though, isn't it? That they could just see whatever you're doing, like when you're on another in your email or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I don't really care as long as you serve me good ads. I care. I'd, I mean, look, if the government can do it, like I, I, care I just about that this too. is. This is what's going on. Like I, my default assumption is there's no privacy anymore. I mean, if, like, I don't know. That's just kind of what I default to. 
if you want privacy, do something on paper. So given the, given the problems that Facebook's got there, why, why, I mean, are you allocating post the, post the blow? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, I don't know if I'm going to, but I think, uh, I, I don't know. We'll see. I think they, I think that the, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that company. I, here's something I think is interesting. They did a big buyback right before this quarter. They have, they have better internal data than everybody. I find it odd that they did a big buyback with better data than everybody else has. And everybody else is convinced that they've lost it. But then why not wait for the 25% drop and spend, spend less or buy more? I don't know. That's, that's the question that one has to ask themselves. But that would indicate that their data is not that good, wouldn't it? It depends on your conclusions from your question. Well, it that assumes that they like know what the market's going to do too, which is no one yeah. really knows that. Yeah. Maybe Ray Dahlia. If they knew that, they'd be running a hedge fund and not a. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, there's uh, there's a lot of theories. A lot of people are convinced it's uh, peak Facebook. We'll see. Yeah, I don't know. I'd be more inclined. Like, I think it's much more interesting down here. Who knows? Like, at some point, it's like a, it's a, it's a, not. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't have any plans to buy it. I'm just saying that, like, down twenty five percent, and it was already sort of cheapish relative to the other ones. Kind of ironic that the the value tech stock is the one that got wrecked. But it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't. I wouldn't have said it was so cheap that it was. It had that free optionality embedded in it. It was just sort of. It was reasonable, dude. It was like priced. eighteen times core earnings. But what's that mean in context with anything else? Like, uh, like the, so you you think that you think that the reason it got wrecked is because it was the value tech stock? Or like, what's the? No, what's no, the, I just think it's you put interesting. Value on anything, it goes down. Yeah, <laughs> I I think that it is an interesting thing where the the tech stock with the lowest multiple got destroyed out of the big ones. I think that's interesting. It's almost as if the market knew that something was coming. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of people got caught off sides because you don't go down 200 billion and have the market. No, but I do think that like as a discretionary investor, if you're just looking at multiples, uh, I, I agree with it in a portfolio context, 100 percent. But I think if you're picking something and your reason is this is relatively cheaper than this, then the next question that you should be able to really articulate is why. Uh, and it's something that when I was younger, I didn't understand. Well, he had I mean, the. the- They've had a they've had a few problems, right? One of them is the, the big change to to Meta and like pursuing this new strategy. I mean, that's totally maybe yeah. it's distinct from what they've been doing before. I also like a lot of us who used it in the past don't use it anymore. So I mean, I still use Instagram, but there's there's clearly there's like there's other things going on. It is complicated, but like no that you're not going to get anything deeply undervalued without some hair on it. That's that's the entire handicapping point of what we're trying to do. Like, I'm not just, I'm not trying to find the best thing. I'm trying to find something reasonable. That's discounted at a price where like, basically if it gets up tomorrow morning, it's going to keep on, it's going to make some money. Like I don't need that's them to be, to be winning all the time. And in fairness, it-, it wasn't like the big pops from Google and Amazon that happened. 
took them to new all-time highs either. So yeah, that I think actually, if you wanted to be bearish on the markets, the best argument to make a little troubling, right? If you're uh yeah, when your beats create lower highs, I think that that would be my technical observation. Is that a cup and handle or what's the <laughs> no, it's a low, lower high? Okay. You don't want lower highs and lower lows, especially in the stocks that drive the market. Well, what's 25% of the market anymore? I was surprised that with like Facebook was like 5% or whatever it was, 25% drawdown. That's 1% of the S&P 500 right there for the next day. And then the market was off like 1.7%. That's like, yeah, that's a pretty modest move. Like didn't, that didn't worry anybody else. I guess the problems are so idiosyncratic to Facebook that it doesn't matter. I, it worries me. I, I'm worried that small business is materially hurt by this change. It's actually probably one of the most concerning things that I've seen. Which change? I, the, the lockdowns or the or the no uh, the, the ATT thing. The stuff that that like if if small business is not able to target consumers as well uh, as they have been in the past, then I think one has to wonder what small business formation is going to do. I think it, it like I mean. You know, we'll see. I don't know. But that that's that uh the reduced efficiency. Oh, fun. This, the reduced efficiency of Facebook I mean, spend is does targeting though mean that you spend less? Or do you have to spend more to get the same? Well, this guy that ran ad com- campaigns said that it hurt the businesses that he advertises on behalf of. So I Were can't they think that that's their good. budgets then because of that? No, but you can spend more on a particular ad if your conversion rate is higher, right? Nobody, it's not your cost per impression that matters. It's your cost per conversion. So uh, at least that's how he looks at the world. So uh, he says that this is bad for the businesses that he advertises on behalf of, and I'm going to take his word on it. I believe that I'm saying though, is it bad for Facebook if if they're still spending the same ad budget, even if it's not as effective, like the revenue is still coming in. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if you look, I mean, they're guiding to single digit growth anywhere as low as three, I think anywhere as high as 11. If you look at a three year stack, I still think that they're growing 20% per year. I mean, it's, I don't know. I know it's a dead business, but it's pretty good dead business. Still growing, even though it's dead. Yeah. (laughs) All right, dudes, that's time. Thanks, amigos. Cheers. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13. Sing one, two, three, four. Cause, cause, cause.